you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Right, so I've given the title, Factors That Hinder Faith. It was difficult for me to come up with the title for this passage that we are going to look at today. I know we are on a journey through the Gospel of John. Last week, we were introduced to this beggar who was born blind, and who by miraculous intervention of our Lord Jesus, he received the sight. Remember that? Last, last week, we were going, going through that. And today, we, we are going to continue in the narrative of the incident that was penned down by Apostle Paul, sorry, John, looking at other characters to see what life lessons that we can learn. It's important that you have a Bible. If you don't have, there are some in the pews. So please pick your Bibles and turn to chapter 9, and we are going to look at verses 13 to 14, uh, 13 to 34, 13 to 34. Church, let me give you a context first. Jesus was in Jerusalem, thank you, son, for the Feast of Tabernacle. It's the Feast of Booth, and, and it's all over now. And where Jesus proclaimed very loud and clear to the Pharisees, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And we looked at it last, last time as well. So the Pharisees were about to stone him, so he slipped away. And as he passed by, he saw this beggar blind from birth, and he had compassion, and he brought about the healing in an unusual way, which caused a commotion. The neighbors were amazed. We studied that last week. So they asked the blind man, now how did this happen? We know you are blind. You can see now how did it happen. So, so, so they gave a response. You can look at verse number 11, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they asked, now where is he? They want to know where this man who healed you. The blind man responded, I don't know, it's verse 13. This sparks a huge uproar amongst the neighbors, the Pharisees, and even the parents. For them, who is this Jesus who, ha- who they claim have performed this miracle? So the question is, after witnessing such a spectacular miracle, why didn't they believe in Jesus? After witnessing this, why didn't they believe in Jesus? Because, church, the scripture tells us again and again, in our own sinful, rebellious state, We cannot and we will not understand spiritual truth. We'll never understand spiritual truth. The Lord has to open our eyes for us to see Him. Church, this is a theme that we see throughout John's Gospel and certainly what we see even in our text today. This is another picture of Israel's persistent unbelief. That's what we're going to see today. So this is not the first time we see that this kind of unbelief, it actually began soon after God delivered them from Egypt. You know the story of the Israelites. They murmured, they complained against God. Even before they reached Sinai, Mount Sinai, they continued to rebel. They would not believe in Him fully, and sadly... Their rebellion and unbelief resulted in, hear me out church, the banishment or expulsion of the original redeemed generation from entering into the promised land. The group of people who left Egypt could not make it to the promised land. Why? Because of the unbelief. Everybody said the word unbelief. Unbelief. Consequently, what happened? They were wandering in the Sinai wilderness. How sad it is. They could have easily gone to the promised land. 
Now, this was not the first time it continued. Come along with me, please. Remember the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, subsequently. Why? Because of their unbelief, which continued into subsequent generations. All this happened because of their unbelief, because of their defiance, because of their rebellion against God. Now, from the time of captivity, 600 years have passed, roughly, we come to this text. We see in the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels how God fulfilled His covenant promises to Abraham. What did He do? God sent His only beloved Son, Jesus, the Messiah. But then John tells us in, in verse, chapter 1, verse 11, we looked at it already, He came to His own, but those who were His own did not receive Him. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Why church? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Church, there may be some of us here, maybe watching online, struggling with persistent unbelief, asking so many questions, defiance and rebellion against God. Before I start, I just want you to see the plea of God. To his children of Israel and even to us. Look at this passage in the book of Isaiah and Paul quoted it in Romans. But as for Israel, God says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. I want this verse to sink in. God, the creator God, the almighty God, who put you together in your mother's womb, he's stretching out his hands. To a group of rebellious people. Imagine how he would feel. The pain that God is feeling right now in this particular verse. Does it sound like us, church? This is a plea from the Lord to the children of Israel and to me and to you. This is a recurring theme throughout the New Testament, certainly in the Gospel of John. In fact, John says, later on we are going to study in chapter 12, verse 37, look at this. But although he had done so many what? Signs before them, they did not what? Believe in him. Rebellious people. They did not believe in him. So church, in our own rebellion, we will not believe. For us to believe, the Lord has to open our eyes. He has to open our eyes. So you ask us, Pastor, how do I know that the Lord is opening my eyes to see the truth? The answer is very simple. It's very simple. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So in other words, church, if the Spirit is prompting you, if it is convicting you, yield to it. Yield to this. Just surrender yourself to him. He is opening your eyes today. So today's account gives us yet another illustration of Israel's unbelief. Church, before we dive into the narrative, we need to ask a very key question here. Why is this miracle such a huge deal for the Pharisees? Let me repeat the question. Why is this miracle such a huge deal for the, for the Pharisees? Come with me, please. In Jewish belief, there were four physical conditions in mankind that only could be corrected by Yahweh himself. Listen, church, it was believed that when Yahweh would send his Messiah, the sign that would prove to the Pharisees who he was would be the performance of four specific miracles. They are these. Let me just list them down for you. They are all taken from this source. And, and the first one is cleansing a leper. Cleansing a leper. The Messiah would cleanse a leper. Number two is casting out a deaf and a dumb spirit. A Messiah would do that. Number three, the healing of birth defects. That's what they're looking at today. Number four would be raising the dead after three days. 
Can you connect Jesus to all these four miracles? Yes? The messianic miracles. These are called the messianic miracles. So the Jews believed that this Messiah would perform these miracles. I just want to expand on this, on these birth defects. The Hebrew sages believed birth defects were a punishment from Yahweh for the sins of a child or his ancestors. Church, now you know why the apostles or disciples responded to God, Jesus, when they saw the blind man. Is it his sin or the sins of the parents? That's the belief system. Look at this. This is based on these two scriptures. Number one is, uh, by, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is why the disciples responded. Is it his problem or is it the parents' problem? And then another passage of scripture that they worked on is the Lord said, who gave a mouth to a man and who makes a person mute or deaf or seeing the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Is it not I, the Lord? So in their view, since it was a punishment from God, only God or Yahweh could correct birth defects, give sight to the one born blind. Now, that's a miracle that we are seeing in chapter 9 here. Church, now you can see the problem, can you? Now you know why they want to rule out Jesus as the healer. So they think if it is true, the blind received the sight, Jesus could be the Messiah. Because this is a messianic miracle, the one who performs should be the Messiah, then Jesus is who claims he is the Messiah. But in their mind, who is Jesus? How can Jesus, an illegitimate child, who does not even observe Sabbath, can be called the Messiah? You see the confusion in the Pharisees now. He simply cannot be the Messiah. I'm sure you can see the predicament here. So we have to rule out that this is not, this Jesus is not the Messiah. Well, church, let's examine the text for today. In this narrative we are going to look at today, there are two groups of people. We are the parents and we are the Pharisees. We see there's a miracle that has been taken place and everyone was confused about the weight of the miracle because the miracle, according to the Jewish sages, can only be performed by the Messiah. That's why there's a problem. That is the root of the problem. But the Pharisees saw not just this miracle, all sorts of miracles, and yet they hardened their hearts because of unbelief. Even the parents had just seen their prayers answered in that their blind son had been miraculously healed, yet they were afraid to admit him as the Messiah. So as you examine the Pharisees and the parents, we can identify four factors which we can relate to very easily, which are either sinful in themselves or stem from sin that keep unbelievers from believing in Christ. Or even so-called believers to grow in spiritual truth. There are four factors. So these factors can hinder our growth. So there's a great lesson for, that we can learn from this. With that introduction, let's dive in. Verse number 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. They brought him. So church, in this context, they are referring to the neighbors. The neighbors. We are not told why they brought him, brought him to the Pharisees, but here's my guess. Hear me out, church. In that culture, the religious leaders exercised control over the people through intimidation. So we read that in verse uh, 22, we'll be coming back to this again. Just follow along very carefully. There's a little bit of teaching here, so I want you to follow along carefully. For the Jews, who? The religious leaders had already agreed what? 
that if anyone confess that he, meaning who? Jesus was Christ. He, whoever confessed, that's what it means, would be what? What would happen to him? Put out of the synagogue. So if someone comes and says, Jesus is the Christ, boom, you are gone. You will be put out of the synagogue. You will be excommunicated. It's a pretty harsh punishment for them. Church, in a culture of fear, people keep their distance from anything that would get them in trouble with the authorities. It's, it's something like the communist regimes, how they operate. If you know that your neighbor is criticizing the government and you don't report him, the authorities will come after you, isn't it? So the neighbors hear that Jesus, whom the religious leaders were trying to get rid of, has healed the beggar. What is the right thing for them to do? Drag this guy, bring him to Jesus. That's, that's exactly what they did with the, with the blind man. We need to take him to the Pharisees. Why did they do that? Out of, what's the word? Fear. Everybody say the word fear. Fear. Out of fear. We see this fear of men prevented them from knowing the truth. We saw the fear amongst the neighbors. Now let's look at the reaction of the parents. I'm going to skip verse 14, come back to that later. Verse 15. Follow along, please. Then the Pharisees also asked him. Now, so the, now the fellow was brought to the Pharisees by the neighbors, and the Pharisees are asking the question, uh, asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Seeing the blind man, they were very clear, who was restored, how did this happen? And he told them, Jesus, heal me. That's all he said. This sparks a debate among the Pharisees. And some of the commentators say even Nicodemus was among the Pharisees there. I'm not going there because it's not, that's not what the, this passage is stating, but some of the commentators are saying that. I can imagine one would ask, could this be the Messiah healing the blind? Imagine, put yourself in that position. There's a blind man who was blind from birth and he's been healed and we know that that's a messianic miracle. And if you were there, you would ask a wonder, can this be the Messiah? And the other person said this. He said, no way it can be. Look at verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. Why? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. He can't be. If he's a Messiah, he would have kept the Sabbath. So others said what? How can a man who is a sinner do such things? So, and there was a division among them. Do you get it? Picture this in the theater of your mind. There's a group of Pharisees, they're debating amongst themselves. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? So in their frustration, naturally I would be frustrated too, they turn again to the blind man and ask for his opinion about this Sabbath breaker, hoping that he may change his story. And this is what they do in verse 17. Look at that. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because you opened your eyes? So in other words, they're asking, who do you think this Jesus is? And what was his response? He is a prophet. The blind man, he is a prophet. At this point, they wonder if this is a, it's all a hoax. Because they were in total denial. They wished that this was all some sort of a prank. So they call, what do they do? They call the parents now. Listen what happened when they call the parents. Verse 18. But the Jews did not what? Believe concerning him about what? That he had been blind. So they did not believe even this blind man was blind to start with. So they said and received his sight. So they thought it was all a hoax and what did they do? Until they called the parents of him who had received the sight. So they even questioned the parents, are you sure that he was blind when he was born? Interesting, isn't it? Just picture yourself standing there and watching all these things. Verse 19, that's exactly what they're asking. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see now? 
in their little mind is impossible for someone who was born blind to see. How is he saying it? If he was indeed blind at birth, it is inconceivable that he can see now. Because no one other than who can heal him? The Messiah. The Messiah. Everybody say the word Messiah. Messiah. Only the Messiah can heal him. And Jesus is not the Messiah as far as we are concerned. So they simply do not wish this to be true. So how the, see how the parents reacted to this. Very interesting. So when the Pharisees tried to discredit the account of his healing, this is what the parents say. They are very diplomatic in their response. See how they are responding. They answer verse 9, uh, chapter, sorry, verse 20. They are stating the facts here. We know that this is our son. Of course he is our child. We know that. And that he was born blind. The second thing they are saying, he was born blind, that's true. But what means he now sees, we don't know. Do you trust them that they don't know? Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. See how evasive they are in their response. Their answer was not truthful, church. Why didn't they say it was Jesus who healed him? You get it? Why were they not forthright in their response? As a parent, if, I, if, if it happened to my child, the first question I would ask is, how were you healed? Who did this to you? Let me go and thank that person. Won't you do that? Yes, of course. Church, we can never say that their son had not told them what, had, what he had told the neighbors. How Jesus has healed them. So the parents must have known for sure. So why didn't they say it was Jesus? And John explains it well in verse 22, which we briefly looked at earlier. Come along with me. His parents said these things because of what? They feared the Jews. So what does that tell you? They know exactly what happened. They don't want to spit it out because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already, uh, already sorry, agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, what will happen to them? He will be excommunicated. It's my, word, my phrase. You don't find it on the scripture, right? They will be put out of the synagogue. Their evasive answers stem from what? Their fear of the Jews. Who had threatened to do what? Excommunicate anyone who confessed Jesus. Church, this explains why the parents were evasive. The question is, why is excommunication such a big deal in the community? You will only appreciate their fear if you understand what the excommunication truly means. Hear me out, church. The consequences of being excommunicated at any level was a serious penalty in that tight-knit religious community. When you are excommunicated, it would mean that you are being cut off socially from your neighbors. The neighbors would also be kicked out, hear me properly, of the synagogue if they associated with you or helped you in any way. You can't buy and sell anything because if your neighbors engage in business dealing with you, they too would get into trouble. You can't escape and run from Mississauga to Dundas. Why? Because the, the, the rabbis there would enforce Sanhedrin's ban. So your court for a poor family being excommunicated would result in social and financial devastation. So the last thing you want in your life is what? Being excommunicated, kicked out of the synagogue. So the parents could have easily let the facts speak for themselves. They could have easily said, Jesus opened the eyes of our son who has been blind from birth. But they dodged the issue. Why? Because of what? Fear. Fear. They missed the opportunity to know Jesus. So how does it apply to us, church? 
It's a problem that has plagued many down to our day. The fear of men hinders spiritual growth. Fear of men hinders even our faith. So let me list down some fears that hinders our faith. This is where the rubber hits the road. Come with me very slowly. So here are some reasons. There can be many fear factors for us. Number one, fear of hand, handing the leadership of myself over to God. Fear of what? Losing our freedom can prevent you from believing. I lose my freedom to decide for myself. I cannot do whatever my heart desires. I cannot decide my future. I will have boundaries to live within. I want to run my own life. I know that if I were to believe in God, I have to change my lifestyle. I don't like the God's moral standards. I don't want to lose my freedom. That can stop you from trusting God or even growing in God. Number two. Making sacrifices. Your fear that it will require a lot of sacrifices. I have to give up my carnal desires, which I am so much glued to, I have to give up. Oh, I have to give up my boyfriend and girlfriend or my relationship who are not in Christ. I don't want to do that. I have to give up my weekends to be on Sundays in the church or the Bible studies or the prayer meeting, otherwise the pastor is going to bug me. I have to give up my weekend parties. I can't go to Vasaga or I can't go to Mexico. Some of you run away to Vasaga, don't come to church. I need to get that chance to poke somebody, right? I don't want to grow because I need to go to these places. I have to forego watching the World Cup on a Sunday. It happened last Sunday. People are missing because there's a World Cup going on. I don't want to grow because of World Cup. We prayed for World Cup on that day anyway. That's a different issue. I have to sacrifice all my wealth for the tithing and offering. Making sack. Number three, the third fear factor for me. I mean, there can be many. Fear of being rejected by others or people making fun of me. Others might think I'm a religious fanatic or a Jesus freak or Bible thumper. You heard these terms? They'll call me that I belong to a holy club. Or they'll treat me as a weirdo and, and I may be left out of this cool club. Fourthly, the fear factor can be being intolerant. I don't want to condemn other religions. I don't want to say that Jesus is the only way because I want to be friends with all the others. I will not say that everybody else is completely wrong and probably going to hell. I don't want to condemn compromised lifestyles. I want to be inclusive. I want to embrace all lifestyles. I don't want to become intolerant. Fear can cause you in your growth. Number five and the last one here is belonging to a morally compromised institution. Sadly, church, when you look at it today, when you talk to non-Christians, they look at churches as a morally compromised institution, whether you like it or not. Because there are a lot of talk about Christian churches that have come out, and you, we know, we are aware of it. The sex scandal of the churches. The residential schools incidents. What about the crusades? What about the prosperity-focused churches? And the list of fears can be many more. So we looked at, the first thing that we looked at was the fear factor, the fear of men, which can hinder your growth in your faith. Secondly, let me say that, say what it is, and I'll go through the passage with you. Wrong beliefs based on religious rules hinder true spiritual knowledge. In other words, false beliefs. Now let us look at the religious leaders. We looked at the parents, we looked at the neighbors. Let's look at the Jews. And John almost offhandedly mentions this, the crux of the problem. Look at this. I skipped this verse earlier, I'm going back now. Now it was 
a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You know, church, when you read the Bible, every verse is there for a purpose. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers to put in every verse with a purpose. Why is this so important? Hear me out, church. Performing a miracle on a Sabbath violated at least three rabbinic Sabbath regulations. Come along with me, otherwise you'll miss it. You could not need on Sabbath. But we... Working? Good. Yes, it is. So there are three uh, rabbinic Sabbath regulations. Understand, the first one is you could not knead on the Sabbath. Jesus kneaded the saliva and dirt into clay. You know that you saw that in the miracle. Secondly is because the rules against anointing. And the thirdly, you could not heal on the Sabbath unless it was to save a life. So Jesus broke everything. Then you'll ask the question to me, Pastor, where is it found in the scriptures? Right? Church, these rules were not in the law of Moses, but had been added by the religious leaders. The false believe our rules are equal to God's law. So once you believe it, Jesus violated our rules. Therefore, Jesus, because he violated God's law, that's why he's a sinner. So their belief was faulty. You know, it's easy to get confused religious traditions and rules with biblical mandates to the point. Where you assume that your traditions and rules are equal with scripture. Let me give an example from my own life. An example that comes to my mind is the dress code. Just come along with me, please. I grew up in a home where my parents insisted that I wear my Sunday best to church always. Always. I can't have half shaven. My dad will put me six feet down. But today, you know, you see a lot of young people. I need to have a session with you guys. Okay, that's a different day. You know, church, I just want you to ask a question here. Let's be serious about this. We know that, sadly, Queen has gone to be with the Lord. Let's say all of us are invited for the funeral. Would you go wearing a filthy shorts and an under and a under shunder shirt and flip-flops? Will you go? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, this house. I don't know, that's how I see it. But with time it became a tradition and a rule for me. I must admit, I must confess. Until I went to a little church in Dundas where I saw people with shabby clothes. Some were unkempt, but passionately worshipping the Lord. So in my little mind, that was not a reverential thing to do based on my tradition and my rules. So I asked the question, are they truly saved? I hope you get where I'm going with this. You know, I also know that back in the hippie era, when most people dressed up in the nicest clothes to go to church, a bearded, long-haired guy, a tattered jeans, a t-shirt, and bare feet had re really been converted. That's the question people ask. What we fail to see, what the Bible says about how a Christian should look. What's my point here, church? Just like the Pharisees who were held up on the Sabbath rituals, wrong assumptions or false beliefs based on man-made religious rules hinder true faith, our growth. So the first factor I said is the fear factor. The second one is false beliefs. Thirdly, let's look at the third factor here. We are always seeking more evidence 
while discrediting the evidence that we have right in front of us. That's what the Jews did. They had the evidence right in front. Jesus was right there. Miracles was right performed. They're looking for more evidence. Seeking more facts. They had the evidence of the neighbors, the parents, and the man. But they were still seeking for more evidence. They still wanted more evidence. Why do they want more evidence? Not to believe in Jesus. But to see how they would, listen to me church, refute the evidence that they had been given. Which they didn't like. That is why they were seeking for more evidence. So they called the man the second time. Look at verse 24. Brought him in. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So you ask the question, what does it give glory to God means? Give glory to God means, church, tell the truth. That's what it means. If you go back to the book of Joshua, we see that uh, in Joshua 7, 9, then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now that you have what you have done. In other words, tell the truth. So what they are saying to this blind man here, come on, your story must be wrong. Tell us the truth. We know for a fact that this man who you claim has healed you is a sinner. But Apostle John wants us to see that the man really is glorifying God by testifying the truth about Jesus. Because here's his simple response. Look at his response here. Verse 25. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. And I'm not going to judge him. One thing I know, I was blind. Now I see. I was blind. Now I see. He will not change his story because that is what really happened. Were they happy with his restaurant? Absolutely not. Look at the next verse. Verse 26. So they ask him again. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Come on. How many times do you want to hear this? They aren't looking for more evidence to believe. They are looking for, can I find something here to discredit the evidence that we have? Interesting how this man was responding. You know, he displays a sense of humor and sarcasm in his response. This fellow who was blind and who received the sight. He had the courage to challenge them. Look at how he responded. I told you already, man, don't you understand that? And you did not listen. And why do you want to hear it again? In other words, he's asking, which part of my response you don't understand? That's what he's saying. Do you want to become his disciples? Interesting, isn't it? He had the boldness to talk to them like that. You wonder where he got the guts to talk, to talk in this manner. You see the confidence this man is beginning to get. So the Pharisees, Apostle Paul uses a, I'm sorry, Apostle John uses a very interesting word, word, word here. The, he uses the word reviled him. It means they abused him. They insulted him. Look at verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, you are his uh, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, as for this fellow, see how they were talking about Jesus? As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. So all they are saying is they are discrediting Jesus as nobody, an insignificant person from who knows where. We don't know where he is from. The blind man didn't stop there. He had the guts and the audacity to talk to these guys like that again. And look at this. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. He's preaching to them now. Wow, it's amazing. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does, he, does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, listen to this carefully, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was blind. What is he telling them? He's reminding them of the messianic miracle. From the time the world began, not a single blind man received his sight. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The blind man became a street preacher here. That's exactly what he's doing here. It's a it's very profound and powerful church, his response. You are looking for more evidence, but it's right in front of you here, and no one has opened the eyes of one who was born blind since the formation of this world. That's what he's saying. Listen, this is a messianic miracle, and what more evidence do you need? The truth does not sink in church. Because the Pharisees were not genuinely seeking evidence to clear up their doubts. They were just looking for ways to discredit the evidence that they already have. The motive is wrong. That's why you're not getting it. There are some amongst us who will always want more evidence. Not to believe, but to refute. Have you come across people like that? Maybe I should come across many. I have seen many caught up in argument about things of God, but we miss the basic element of simple faith. And one thing we, we, we I, you know, I'm not, please, it's not, I'm not looking at anyone because it's not about you guys. I, this is what I've seen outside. But you guys are wonderful, great. Because I need to go home from here. Have you heard some of the eschatological arguments about people? Which view do you take? And we keep on arguing about those things. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong in understanding it. But are these people sure of their salvation? Are they ready to meet the Lord? The Lord is to take them home today. We sometimes spend a lot of time debating about the rapture. Is it pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or pre-roth? Right? When it happens, it happens. We'll know that. But the most important question, church, is that are we ready? Are we ready to meet the Lord? So when you debate about these things, you seek knowledge to refute or prove your intelligence, but are you really seeking the Lord? Because the Lord knows it, and if He knows that you are genuinely seeking, He will reveal Himself to you. Definitely. Church, we will never have answers to all the questions for us to believe. That is why we have different denominations and different belief systems. That is why church, we find in the book of Deuteronomy, you can note it down, go home and look at it, verse, chapter 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us, to our children forever, that we may do all the words of, the law, of this law. So there are some things we'll never understand on this side of heaven. We'll only understand when we go to the Lord. Please hear me out, church. The Lord has left enough evidence for us to know Him. He sent His Son, He gave His Word, He given His given our spirit, He has given pastors and teachers, and what more do you need? To those who questions, Jesus told a beautiful parable, and you know that about the rich man and Lazarus, Meeting Abraham and Jesus, con uh, the, the parable concludes like this, verse 31, Luke chapter 16. He, Abraham, said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We'll always need more evidence. This is a warning to those who love to debate. What am I saying here, church? We can all have the head knowledge, the Pharisees have it. But until it becomes a heart transformation, it's a matter of heart. It will never take root. The fruit will never grow unless it takes root. But the fruit can come, can't come without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit requires simple faith. Just like this blind man. We'll, note, we'll read it as we go through the passages. We'll learn later on that he became a believer. I was blind. I can see. Jesus did this. Simple faith. So the factors that hinder our faith, we looked at three things. Fear of men and false faith or relying on man-made beliefs and seeking futile efforts. And the last one, when the pastors say, last one, everybody's happy. You know why? The sermon is coming to a close. The sermon is only starting now, church. Fourthly, the last one, 
is pride, false pride, can hinder true spiritual knowledge. Let us read verse 34 here. Oops, sorry. I thought I brought up. Okay. The, Paris, the Pharisees put down this man's testimony here. This is a very interesting passage. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. You know, very interesting, as you read this passage, you realize they go back to the same thing that the disciples concluded at the very beginning. Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And you also see that they are going back to the Old Testament, the passages that I mentioned, that they were born in sin and all the suffering you are going through is because of sin. You are completely born in sins. So they held the same view like the disciples, that, that either the man or his parents must have sinned for him to have born blind. But they prided themselves on their spiritual knowledge because they thought that they knew the scriptures. See how this former blind beggar, who was probably illiterate, teach them anything. As we go through verses 40 and 41, which we'll look at next time, we will see the pride demonstrated clearly to the Lord next week. But church, note this. Spiritual pride is one of the main reasons why people don't come to Christ. Some so-called Christians. There is some godliness in them, but God is not in them. They can speak the right language, they can behave the right way, but God is not in them. They think that the Bible knowledge would suffice to be branded a Christian. They think the good works will commend them to God, but they don't see the need for the Savior. So the starting point for true spiritual knowledge is that you admit that you are a sinner and need a Savior. So in conclusion, trust me, I'm coming to an end. There are four things that we looked at. The factors that can hinder your faith. Number one, fear of men. Fear of being rejected. Number two is the false beliefs, wrong presuppositions based on religious traditions. Number three is futile facts, which is seeking futile facts, always seeking more evidence while discrediting the evidence you already have. Number four is the false pride. Self-righteousness egotistical, I-know-it-all mentality. Who can teach me what? This will hinder our growth, our genuine faith. I just want to conclude by a little event that was recorded, and Billy Graham has used it. There was an English actor, most of you may have heard it. In honor of him, there was a banquet that was, that was summoned and and he was there and he was asked to recite Psalm 23. Must have heard this before. He read it in a moving way. He brought out the beauty of the psalm and people applauded. There was standing ovation and everybody was screaming and, 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 and shouting for joy for the way that he presented the Psalm 23. Then there was his old pastor who was there. He was asked to go to the front and Recite Psalm 23, and he recited, cracking voice, not coming out right, and but with love, vibrant with love. When he concluded, there was no applause, but there were not many dry eyes in the room. When it was finished, the actor went to the pastor. And he said, Sir, I know the psalm, but you know the Savior. You know the shepherd. Do you know the shepherd? That's my question to you. Do you know the shepherd? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the <coughs> message that we can read and understand from this text today. And thank you for ministering to us. And all of us are guilty in one way or the other that we allow these factors to hinder our faith, hinder our spiritual growth. And thank you for convicting us in the areas. 
and I pray in Jesus' name that from this day onwards, Master, that we will be diligent in overcoming those fears and we will grow in you and there will come a day we will not only know the psalm, but we will know the shepherd as our personal Lord and Savior. So help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Church, we are going to go into the next phase of our service. Is my mic on? Not yet. As we prepare ourselves to partake in the Holy Supper, as a pastor, it's my responsibility to tell you who can partake in this. If you are truly a believer, if you have committed your life to the Lord and have accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior, are most welcome to receive the emblems and I'll give you instructions so we can partake together. If you are not, when the emblems are served, please don't open your hand and uh, just close it so I will not place the uh, emblems in your, in your hand. But even for, this, for us who know the Lord, have committed our lives, there is a warning that's been given in the scriptures. Paul writes and says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread or drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it's important, church, that we take a moment to examine ourselves, to confess. I'm sure that we have done things and we may, things that are not pleasing to the Lord. May this be the time that we take a moment. Can I ask all of you to just close your eyes and bow your heads, please? And take a moment just to reflect on your life and see if there are things that are not pleasing to the Lord, that we are not put right with God. And I'm going to lead you in a short prayer. And the Lord has said, if we confess, He is faithful and just. He will forgive us, He'll cleanse us. And He will make us right today. But we must come with a contrite heart. Father, we thank you for this time that you have given. Thank you that we, as a, collectively, as one body, we can come to you. We thank you for the opportunity that we can partake in this Holy Supper. As we prepare ourselves to do it, we, as we examine ourselves, Master, we can see there are many areas in our life that are not pleasing to you. So we plead with you in the name of Jesus that as we ask for forgiveness, that you are faithful and just, that you will not only forgive us, Master, that you will restore us. I pray that you help us, O God, to live a life that is only pleasing to you, that brings glory to you. So we pray that as we take part in this Holy Supper, we pray that you will truly understand the meaning of this, and that, Father, that we will rededicate ourselves this morning. So help us, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.